You're listening to Get Fed Today, one podcast designed to provide the Christian a hearty Bible study five days a week. While our mission is to showcase a variety of different Bible teachers, if you want to access more content from a particular pastor, simply listen to the end of the episode for additional information. On behalf of the entire team at Get Fed Today, it is our prayer that today's episode encourages your growth in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. John chapter 2. We left off in verse 12. We actually did not cover 12. It finishes, it's kind of a transition between what Jesus did on that first miracle to this next thing that happens in Jerusalem. Because, but, it, but it's a transition because it says after this, it's kind of a word John uses a lot, metatauta in Greek, a common connection with John, uh, metatauta, after these things, he went down to Capernaum. We don't know how much time it was, But from Cana, maybe more in the mountains of Galilee, where Nazareth, not far from Nazareth, you go down into this valley, 613 feet below sea level, which is where the Sea of Galilee is. And that was where his ministry was going to be. He, his mother, his brothers, and his disciples. And they didn't stay there many days. So he gives you a picture, at least of time, where his focus is, of course, on Jesus' miracles, his I am statements, But beyond the miracle signs, we come to another sign here when we come to verse 13. Um, It says, the Passover then of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So they didn't stay long in Galilee. And they go from 600 feet below sea level up to like 2,500 feet above sea level. In a short period of time, it's quite an incline to go up to Jerusalem by foot. And a a controversy ensues. And though this isn't really a sign, it actually moves the people who are struggling with Jesus to ask for a sign. Give us a sign to show who you are, what what authority you have. All of what John wants us to think through, he wants to bring us to that place where we would actually believe Jesus. So he's given us some facts that we can make our mind up and to consider, is he just a a man worthy of following his example, a good man? Is he a great prophet worthy of listening to? Or is he the savior of the world? And even more so, is his very life going to replace the law and the temple in a way that's so profound? So, and, and what's our part? How do we respond to this? So the Passover of the Jews was at hand. Jesus went up to Jerusalem. John always connects the Jewish feasts with the ministry of Jesus. And I love that because most Christians are not really aware of the feasts of Israel, whether it's Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, uh, the Feast of Pentecost, the Feast of Trumpets, the, uh, you know, the Feast of, you know, of um, uh, Sukkoth, the, the, uh, Sukkoth, Sukkot, uh, that, that amazing thing we call the Feast of Tabernacles. And all of the feasts, and when you think about all these feasts, the Day of Atonement, everything points to Jesus. So John focuses those things on, and he calls this the Feast of the Jews, which is kind of an interesting thing. He's, he's Jewish. Most of the people around would know, I mean, about the Passover. Why would it have to be told to people it's the Feast of the Jews, unless this letter was intended to go farther beyond just the Jewish world, as well as... There was a distinction between the Judean Jews from which the word Jew came from in Judea and the rest of the Jewish population. They were kind of the elite in Jerusalem. 
the scholars. Um, the, the last time Jesus was in Jerusalem, he was 12 years old. Uh, and he, his parents thought each the other had him, and he ended up, they ended up had to come back for him, and looking all over for him, finds him in the temple, talking with the scholars, uh, answering their questions, and they were blown away at this 12-year-old. Uh, they didn't realize who he was exactly. And, of course, then Jesus submitted to his parents, you know, told them, didn't you know uh, that I had to be about my father's business? I mean, every young Jewish male when they're raised by their mother largely uh, and the things that they need to learn growing up as a boy then hit the bar mitzvah where now they get, tutel, uh, they get their tutoring under their father and their father's business. And instead of going back to Nazareth to be a carpenter, he says, oh, I'm with my father in heaven here in the temple. But he submitted, went back, and he became the uh, Joseph's, you know, um, you know, person he trained, and of course he became a carpenter, builder, tecton, that is. And of course, that's just a, a picture of Jesus, how he healed it. So this is a powerful thing. Now, it's some people read in this a criticism of the Jews, because John always talks about the Jews did this, the Jews did that. He, he's Jewish, so he's not saying that the Jews are bad. In fact, he quotes Jesus saying, salvation is of the Jews. And so you can't get any anti-Semitism some people have out of the Gospel of John, but it's crazy. I mean, John the Baptist was connected with the priesthood. John the Apostle himself. And, of course, notable exceptions of the evil Jew Jewish leadership of Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. So there's, not, there's nothing here. And I have to emphasize this because in our world right now, you might be watching the news and seeing a huge rise in anti-Semitism. Uh, it's off the chart and in the world. And uh, even when the UN is calling what Israel is doing apartheid with the Palestinian thing, um, I love how that one representative said, excuse me, can you, Mr. President, can you show me how, where, the, where are the Jews in Algeria? There used to be thousands of them. Now there's none. Where are the Jews in Iraq? There used to be thousands. Now there's a trickle of them. Where's the Jews in Egypt? There used to be tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands. Now there's a, a precious few. Where are the Jews and where is the, the um, ethnic cleansing going on really? And most people aren't paying attention. But even around the world, what happened, we thought in Nazi Germany would never happen again. Uh, now we're seeing a rise in that. And um, you're seeing this fomented by the radicals in universities. Uh, their, their perspective of Palestine, they have no idea what they're talking about. They have no clue. They're just told by the professor to get out there and march with this sign. And like good little drones, they do it. But they're not thinking through. They've got their talking points from things that I, I don't, the only explanation I can think of is it's satanic. And leaders of this world are getting talking points out of the mouth of the dragon himself. So we need to stand for the Jewish people. We really do. For this same satanic spirit uh, is going to come after us next. And if we don't stand with them, who's going to stand with us? Yes, this is what we need to understand in our world. But don't even think for a moment John is anti-Semitic by speaking of the Jews in this way because Jesus essentially is Jewish and he is going to express you know, what the purpose of this is all about. So Passover, he comes. Passover, of course, was the celebration that all Israel once a year was required to come. Every male was required to come up to Jerusalem and celebrate this. It commemorated 
the night in which was the last night that they were slaves in Egypt. And it was the final plague that came upon the Egyptians. The firstborn of every family would die unless they put the blood on the the doorpost and the lintels in the side, almost like the shape of a cross. It's kind of interesting. If they put that up there, then the angel of death would pass over. So Israel and all who were believed what was spoken by Moses, they did that. And that night was a great outpouring. It was the night that Pharaoh let the people go. They came out of Egypt. And uh, this is the Passover that they would celebrate. And of course, we're going to be actually commemorating that in the, in the Lord's Supper afterwards. It's, it was part of the Passover meal that Jesus pointed out himself in that as the Passover lamb. Remember, behold the lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. So Jesus comes up to Jerusalem and and verse um, uh, 14 says he found in the temple. That is the entire temple complex. Uh, We have a picture of the temple proper of Herod's temple behind us from the model. But um, that's not a picture of an actual building. It's a model. But the idea is that the entire area around the outer court would have been the court of the Gentiles, and they would have had all of these things going on. But notice what was going on that Jesus was not pleased with. It says, those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. Now, the truth is people needed those items in order to offer sacrifices. But many people would come with their little lamb or they'd come with their sacrifices, their little turtle doves. And then they would go through this scrutiny of, well, we need to inspect it. And they'd find some blemish. Well, we can't offer this, but we have one we can buy. And with inflated prices, it became a profitable money-making business. This is what happened, and Jesus sees them doing business. And what could have, should have been great joy is all the focus is on the marketplace, the money. Uh, lots of money flowing from religion. And I'll tell you, it's true today. You know, people can take advantage of religious notions, and they can stir them up and... Um, some are quite adept at using religion to uh, basically live quite high. And, uh, and, I, and I, I'm amazed at what people fall for. Now, if you put your $100 in the plate, glory to God, he'll multiply that to $100,000. You want $100,000? Put your 100 in the plate right now. They have such clever ways of manipulating people. And if you can be manipulated by that, I'm sorry, but you deserve it. Because that just blows my mind what people do. But you know what? Money making. And then they buy their private jets and their private mansions. And, you know, it's like and people love to have to be ripped off like that. Because in a way, they're hoping maybe if they keep following this formula, they'll become rich like that guy. What a sad motivation to yield your substance to God for the glory, his glory and for his work turned into something that was horrible. And of course, in that day, money definitely flowed. In Jerusalem, in 54 BC, Cassius captured Jerusalem, raided the temple, and he took a treasury, according to historical records, of over $10 million. It would be equivalent to our money today. Didn't even come close to exhausting the treasury. That's how much money they were floating. Even Caiaphas, the high priest in Jesus' day, They uncovered an incense-making business in his basement. He was making money off of the people of God. And, of course, 
Some people try to say, well, pastor, don't you sell books, you know, in conferences, you know, in the foyer. And I'm like, listen, you know, the difference between that, making resources available for people to grow on at your own free will, no requirement. Uh, if I came up here and I told you everyone has to get it, you can't, you know, you, we're not, that's a racket. This is what was happening. They have to change their Roman coins that had Caesar's image to the temple coin. Um, that's okay but not when there's an interest in a fee and all the money behind it. So that became a racket. Everybody's required to have the proper sacrifice, the proper coins, and you have to purchase ours, of course. That's a racket. So there's a big difference there. So Jesus comes in verse 15, and he says, Hey, cool guys, what y'all doing? No, he doesn't say that. (laughs) Verse 15, he says, When he made a whip of cords... And drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changer's money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Now this actually, though it's not a miracle, it is a sign. Any Jewish person would have been struck with the parallel If they read the last book, well, our last book of the Old Testament is Malachi, the prophet. If you're Italian, Malachi. (laughs) Chapter 3, verse 1. This is what God says. He says, Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. So John the Baptist already did that. He prepared the way before the Lord coming. And where you would meet Jesus in the official corridors of, of Judaism would be in the temple. Suddenly he'll show up. And how will he show up? Verse 2. Who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he's like a refiner's fire and launderer's soap. He'll sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He'll purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. Not covetousness, not corruption, but righteousness. You know, if righteousness reigned in our world, we'd have enough food to feed the world three times over. Everybody. There's enough resources to go around. God has plentifully provided. Anyone argues against, you know, God in this world. Listen, it's not the world. It's the corruption of man in a corrupt world that withholds more than is right. So this is really the Lord coming to purify. Now, often people, when he made a whip, that was a sign of authority. And it's only one of the few places where he uses force because cleansing must occur. Listen, don't confuse grace with passivity. I know some people still quote, gentle Jesus, meek and mild. I don't see that here. I see when it came to the anger in his heart, over unrighteousness that was that's called indignation that is your it's a righteous anger it's it's that kind of anger you should have when you see injustice when you see these people indoctrinate your children in schools you should have an anger you have to control it but but it has to go somewhere to do to protect to do what's right well then his disciples verse 17 notice Remembered that it was written, zeal for your house has eaten me up. So they didn't know this at the time. They're still trying to figure out what's going on. 
And, uh, but yet they're also realizing that Psalm 69 was a messianic psalm. In verse 9, he actually says this. Because zeal for your house has consumed me or eaten me up, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Now later, the disciples, they connect the term eaten me up with his death. In verse 22, we'll see that. See, the temple itself was a focal point where God and his people uh, meet, became, uh, look, this was what God is doing. And I pray that she gets rid of that cough. I feel bad for it. I've, I've had that happen to me too. You know, it's kind of a bummer. Lord help her. The temple itself, though, this was the focal point. This was where one day God is going to replace the temple and the law with the true temple and the true law of God. Jesus, he was bold here and forceful, but not cruel. Uh, and his action must have been a pretty stark, but yet not enough to raise a riot. Now, here's a wild thing. Why didn't the authorities of the Romans come in and stop this? Because it didn't turn into a riot. It's like everybody's kind of stunned at what Jesus is doing, but there wasn't a big riot. Um, that's what's surprising. Why wasn't there a riot? Why didn't they try to stop Jesus? Verse 18 gives you a clue. The Jews answered and said to him, what sign do you show us since you do these things? So these leaders are, are, are a little, they're a little confused here. Had he been just some rabble rouser or some unstable mentally you know, off person, they could have easily handled him. But they're requesting a sign, which means that they had some thought he might be a prophet. But the very question is problematic because there's not a concern about what they're doing is wrong and uh, not to weigh that action, but they're more, it's kind of like an ad hominem. It's like, well, who are you? It's kind of someone caught you stealing and you turn it into, well, who do you think you are? It's none of your business. They pointed out something wrong. You know, the reality is that's exactly what they're doing. They're, they're turning this into an ad hominem attack. I mean, well, what do you think you, who do you think you are to approach us? Instead of, hey, maybe you're right. So, but they're, they're confused. So the Jew, Jewish authorities, they had eyes to see. They would have recognized the cleansing of the temple was a sign itself. They wouldn't even ask for a sign. But this idea of exposing the moral defect and instead of searching your heart, you blame shifted on somebody else. By the way, you know, let's make this a personal illustration. You know, if your spouse, who, by the way, if you've been married for 20 years, uh, you've got to understand your spouse knows you better than you know you. Your spouse knows you better than you know you. You've got to understand that. This, it's one of the most, uh, it's the biggest trick on nature that we have to face because self-knowledge is not an easy knowledge. And in a narcissistic culture, you know how much knowledge of self-awareness a narcissist has? About zero. They have no comprehension of anything. Their whole world is themselves. This is what we become more and more in our nation. And it's, that's why it's killing marriages. It's killing relationships. Because instead of actually being a, your spouse approaches you of something you've done wrong, question your motive. How dare they question my motive? But instead of searching your heart, you just basically blow them off. Unless your boss said something. Oh, yes, sir. I'll do it right away, sir. Okay. Thank you, sir. You know, someone that really doesn't even know you that well, you kind of kowtow to because it's your job. But 
you walk and strut around in your marriage relationship like you're something like you're the queen or the king. Let me just say this. There should be an awareness for all of us. I know myself, my wife included, we if we get criticized or something pointed out about what we're doing, our initial reaction might be defensive. But then we come around and realize, you know what? You were right. Forgive me. Shouldn't have said that. And that's kind of what the Lord is looking for, that right response. And the Lord is looking for that in his people. But instead, they're deflecting. What sign do you show us since you do these things? Now, Jesus does something really fascinating. He, he offers them a sign. Now, I love this one. Verse 19, it's, on a literal level, it's pretty clever. He said, oh, you want a sign? Well, he didn't say that. I'm adding that. But he said, destroy this temple, and in three days, I'll raise it up. Now, if he was actually literally offering that as a sign, I mean, the Jewish people would not be likely willing to destroy the temple just to prove him wrong. Um, But if indeed they did, it would have been a powerful sign. But Jesus' response is completely misunderstood when he says destroy this temple. In fact, later the leaders used this in his trial against him in Mark 14. In verse 58, some false witnesses get up. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and within three days I'll build another one made without hands. So they twisted his words as if he was going to destroy the temple. No, he's telling them, you destroy the temple and I'll raise it in three days. Then, verse 20, the Jews said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you'll raise it up in three days. They're saying that's ridiculous. That's their response. And literally, it had been had taken 46 years. This temple complex was amazing. It was one of the wonders of the world that Herod built. Um, highly regarded. It wasn't finished. They've got another 15 more years to finish it. It won't be finished by AD 63 just seven years before the Romans come in and completely destroy the structure where Jesus predicted not one stone would be left upon another. The record of the historians that died, they said that many of the priests and leaders hid in the temple and barricaded them against the Romans and a drunken soldier fired an arrow and it basically shot and caught a fire inside the temple and it cremated them alive and the so intensely it was hot that the gold melted between the cracks of the stone. So to get the gold, they had to take every stone apart. And to this day, it's just a bare rock. Now there's a dome of the rock on the Temple Mount, but where you can see etched in the ground various places in the bedrock where the temple and Emlyn's uh, representatives of it were. Now, that's their response. What is, what's really going on? What does he really mean? Verse 21, he says, but he was speaking of the temple of his body. He wasn't being coy. What he's doing is he wants them to think, and this is a very common way that Jesus would communicate. For example, when he was at the last day of the feast in John 7, 39, and he said, hey, come unto me, all you thirsty, and I'll give you living waters. In John 39, he says, but this he spoke concerning the spirit. He's not going to give them water to drink. Uh, Even the woman at the well, you know, what are you going to give? You know, you have no bucket to dry water. Where are you going to get this living water? It was a reference of the work of the Spirit. And of course, even when Lazarus, uh, he'd heard, was was sick and about ready to die, um, he delayed. And then he told his disciples, 
uh, Lazarus is asleep. Let's go see him. And, and they're like, well, master, if he's asleep, he's going to wake up again. And Jesus had to tell them very plainly in John eleven thirteen, 13, uh, he spoke of his death. And they only thought he was speaking of taking rest in his sleep. Jesus would use these types of things to communicate. And here he says, destroy this temple. What was he referring to? He was referring to his body. That indeed they will destroy his body and he will raise it up on the third day. Now keep in mind, this is an interesting parallel. This should be very helpful for us. What was the temple all about? Mainly it was about the sacrifice that was offered up to God so that the sins of the people could be temporarily covered year by year. All the sacrifices, eventually the final sacrifice would be sprinkled in the mercy seat inside the temple and God would then forgive the nation. It was a place where you, a sinner, could meet with God who is holy and perfect. And if you didn't have that sacrifice, then his justice would consume you. But instead, it consumes the sacrifice. And now you're let off the hook. Not by any righteous deeds you're doing, but by his mercy, his provision. That's what the temple was about, is where you meet with God. Just as the tabernacle was in the wilderness. But it all pointed, even in the law, there was a sense that one should anticipate a sacrifice beyond what they could offer. Because the law expected a holiness from all of us, that's impossible. I'm, come on, Ten Commandments. Let's sum up the law, Ten Commandments. Anybody here in this room, have you kept all the Ten Commandments? Any hands going up? Uh, if there is a hand going up, I'd love to talk to you afterwards. That'd be very interesting, because then I'll have to point out, you liar, <laughs> which is part of the Ten Commandments you broke. So this is a problem and we have to keep having these sacrifices. So they anticipated one day when the Messiah comes, he's going to take care of everything. And now here he is in their midst. But the temple was viewed as this pattern of God meeting with people. It was called the tent of meeting in the wilderness. The temple now under Solomon, now under Herod, Zerubbabel's temple, then Herod's temple, which was basically rebuilt Zerubbabel's. And that, now we have this contrast between Jesus's body and the temple because why well Jesus the son of God the lamb of God is going to one day for all settle the debt that you and I have with God we owe a debt we can't pay he paid a debt he didn't owe, and he covered our sin more than that he took away our sin not just covering but literally removing sin and bringing us into a relationship with him. So he is now where we meet with a holy and righteous God. Through him, we stand. In Jesus, we have peace with God. God's anger and wrath against evil, just like you have an anger and wrath against evil. Listen, you see injustice, it gets you angry. God has an anger against all unrighteousness. But that is, by those who have believed in Jesus, appeased. There's one more application of that I'm going to save to the end because it's very significant. But the Psalms and the prophets, of course, all of this came alive. And the Bible says here that, uh, therefore, verse 22, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them and they believed the scripture 
and the word which Jesus had said. So that's pretty powerful. They never made the connection until after he was risen from the dead. Um, Then they believed. And then now it all made sense. They admit no one got the full meaning until he was raised from the dead. Because then the Holy Spirit illuminated their mind. The helper, which we are so grateful for, the Holy Spirit's help in this regard. So verse 23 says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. So now you have this idea. The disciples now believed after he was resurrected. Many people were believing in him when they saw the signs. So John doesn't record all the miracles in this first time he came to Jerusalem. Uh, The other synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, do cover a lot of those miracles. And he got a huge following. Man, he was the place to go. He was the popular one. The authorities hated him. uh, And they threatened to throw people out of the synagogue if they followed him. But they were so impressed with all these miracles. But then there's this infuriating word in verse 24. But. Every time you... Anyway, listen, someone come up and you say, you know, I love your this and I love your that, but... You're like, uh-oh, what they really want to say is coming next. So this is, you know, they believed when they saw these miracles, the signs. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was on man, in man. You know, they might have been impressed by the miracles, but not understanding the full significance of who he was that would not just, you know, give them a new popular idol to follow, but rather truly change their heart and their mind, which would affect their behavior. So he, Jesus, acknowledges that this kind of faith put in the miracles. Now, listen, if there was some stupendous miracle happening right now, which of you wouldn't be like, oh, this is telling hundreds of people, you got to come to this place. That's why a lot of these ministries, they have quite a scenario in which they can prop up, you know, the supposed miracles that take place. Not that miracles don't take place. God does. But I, I wonder sometimes if the Lord does it in ways that just like he told, he's, he, he told the man to stretch forth his hand and his hand was healed and he, and, and he didn't make a big deal of it. Um, others want to, you know, make a big show of it and draw a crowd and get people to follow them. And people want to see a miracle. They want to see something cool and new and fresh. And whoa. I know that. Even when I was in wrestling, you know, I, I tried to develop certain moves that would be spectacular looking so that everyone would go, ooh. Yeah, that was me. <laughs> I did that. You know, people love that sort of thing. But it doesn't change the heart. You know, the surface stuff. And this is where he he did not commit himself to them because they weren't really committed beyond. I mean, they're the ones that on the last Passover, when he comes in on the donkey and they're singing, Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David. Save now. Woo, he's here. Yeah, give me a J. Give me an E. Give me an S. You know, they're doing the whole chant. and But what, a few days later? They're crying what? Crucify him. The same people. So it tells you how fickle people can be. And Jesus did not commit himself. And listen, maybe you can actually take the time to evaluate your own faith. Have I really trusted him? Because that trust is really not seen until it's tested. 
You know, if everything, look, I, even as a pastor, a young pastor, when I was starting here and things were going really good and, all right, Lord, thank you, you're working. And then there'd be a trial and, a, all right, who sinned? What, what, what did we do wrong? And sometimes, you know, I would think that the norm was everything going perfect to prove God was here. And I learned very quickly that, no, sometimes God allows the challenges and the trials and the problems, even my weakness and somebody else's weakness and somebody else missing that and somebody you've got offended here and I offended them over here. I mean, all the different things. But it really just tested people to get their eyes on the Lord Jesus. Doesn't excuse what we did, you know, if it was wrong, it was wrong. But you know what? God wanted to show in reality If everything always was smooth in your life when you came to him, what would be the motive for you following him? You know, if if you're not tested, you're tested in your marriage, are you not? You're tested in your work. You're tested in friendship. You have a disagreement with your friend and you don't see eye to eye and you become enemies for a season until you mature through that. So this is all a part of why he did not commit himself to them. And, and boy, does he know us. Listen, when you know yourself, you're, you, you kind of know everybody. Because if you're in touch with your own human nature, you know how it works. That's why narcissists are completely oblivious to reality. Because they don't even know themselves. And they can't know what other people are. Jesus knew But I can't help make this final application here that's so significant. Um, As he says these things, you know, and we're preparing our heart for communion. As Jesus cleansed the temple, because it was a place where God was meeting with people who were still in the Old Testament time. Then Jesus himself is the temple that his body is destroyed, his sacrifice, so that that sacrifice can be once and for all settled. But now our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Those who believed in Jesus, now they've been adopted into his family and the very presence of, listen, the Bible says he was joined to the Lord as one spirit with him. Consider that. But you see, we still live in a physical body that is prone to temptation, prone to weakness, prone to weariness, prone to resist pain and and, you know, we, we don't want to follow God because that's a road of pain sometimes. We're prone to be listening to our bodies rather than telling our bodies, shut up, I'm not listening to you anymore. I know whom I'm following. And that's kind of preaching to yourself the truth. And that's the key. And I believe that Jesus did not commit himself here because the, the belief in him was just the shallow Uh, My senses are being triggered and I'm really loving this. It's great. I feel wonderful. I've I've met people that have come to a service and, wow, I feel so different. This is so amazing. When I hear that word, I feel, I go, okay, Lord, I'm praying that that really becomes something real instead of just an emotional experience. Because when you truly believe it's beyond emotion, it's even beyond your intellect. It's beyond what you do. It's something that transcends it all. When the spirit of God is empowering you. And this is what we really want to be. I want to be more yielded to the work of the spirit in my life. I am far from like Jesus. I'm a lot more like Jesus than I was in my 50s or my 40s or my 30s or 20s. I don't want to go back there. But I'm still, oh Lord, help me. In fact, the more you are conscious of the Holy Spirit's conviction 
when you're aware of your own weakness, instead of it making you, oh, I'm no good, I'm horrible, you know, Eeyore, oh, woe is me. That's not the response that happens when the Lord really shows you your sin. It's when you have that understanding of his grace, it's like, thank you, Lord. I would have never seen myself unless you use that circumstance, that person, that situation to show me. Thank you for your amazing forgiveness. Help me to be better in that regard. All religious shame and guilt upon a believer is the wrong road. You have the cross. And instead of it making you think, well, I can just do whatever I want and then just pray, thank you, Jesus, for forgiving me, it doesn't work that way because you are so aware of your own failures and weaknesses. It's, it's a real thing, and you want to please the Lord. It's, it's a powerful thing. So when you're convicted, we rejoice. We respond to that conviction. And so as we take partake of communion in a way, it's a beautiful picture of what, what I would call Maybe, Lord, this is a time we can bring some of our junk to you and you can cleanse our temple. Uh, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are the place in which others may know that God is real and that you have a ministry of reconciliation. That's every believer. You know, God in Christ reconciled the world to himself. You've been brought into that ministry to be Jesus' arms and feet to the world to bring them that they can be reconciled with God through his son. You have a ministry of reconciliation. It's powerful. Nothing is, anything you may be doing, any career, any thought, any work, nothing compares to realizing that ministry of reconciliation. That people can know that forgiven because the blood of Jesus Christ and it's powerful. So that's why we are taking this time Ask the Lord to do his work in us. Lord, thank you. And I pray for some here that perhaps for the first time heard the gospel that, that it's not by any work that they do to reach you, God, but it's what you did for them by your own son dying on the cross. And that, Lord, may they right now receive your son, believe in him, trust him. And Father, as we partake of communion, that which you gave to your disciples in the night you were betrayed, to remind them what you did, that new covenant in your blood and your body broken for them. Guide us, Lord. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to Get Fed Today. Today's sermon comes from Pastor Lloyd Pulley. If you enjoy the message, you can learn more about Pastor Lloyd's ministry by visiting www.ccob.org.